This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said today that it is unlikely the legislature will act on any information from Michael Gableman's investigation into the 2020 presidential election until after this fall's election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Voss cited, quote, obstruction, unquote, from Democrats for the delay in the investigation. The comment comes after Gableman again issued a petition last week to jail the mayors of Madison and Green Bay if they did not sit for deposition with Gableman behind closed doors. Both mayors have stated that they are willing to give a deposition, but only if it's held in public. The former Supreme Court justice's investigation was supposed to conclude by the end of 2021, but it has been extended multiple times to give Gableman more time. Voss said that he's hopeful that Gableman will release a report by early next week. Meanwhile, the state assembly held one of their final floor sessions of the 2021-2022 session today, passing a bevy of bills. One of those bills would create mandatory jail time for habitual shoplifters. The Republican-led bill was passed by the state assembly on Tuesday, followed by the state Senate, uh, excuse me, passed by the Senate on Tuesday, followed by the assembly earlier today. The bill would mandate a judge to sentence anyone convicted of a third shoplifting offense within five years to at least 180 days in jail, according to the Associated Press. Opponents of the bill, including the state public defender's office, said that the bill would do little to deter crime and lead to overcrowding jails. The assembly also passed a resolution today calling for a convention to add term limits for federal congressional seats. Wisconsin is now the fifth state calling for such a convention, joining Florida, Alabama, Missouri, and West Virginia. 34 states are needed to bring such bring about such a convention. As the legislature wraps up its legislative se- season or session, pardon me, state Democrats introduced a bill today to require clergy members to report instances of child abuse. The bill was introduced by three Democratic lawmakers, Senator Melissa Agard of Madison, Senator Lena Taylor of Milwaukee, and Representative Christina Shelton of Green Bay. Joining the trio in introducing the bill was Peter Isley, Program Director for Nate's Mission, a group that's working to uncover sexual abuse within clergy groups. The bill is now circulating for co-sponsors. Governor Tony Evers announced today that Madison and Dane County will receive $21 million in state funding to help fund community development projects. The Capital Times reports that the city will receive $6 million, while Dane County receives the other $15 million. The money will be used for a variety of projects around Madison, including the Black Business Hub, the Center for Black Excellence and Culture, and the long-awaited Madison Public Market. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway said in a statement, quote, each of these worthy projects is the product of strong collaboration and each will play an essential role in creating opportunity and community, end quote. The city is hosting a community meeting tonight to discuss their potential plans for the Transit Network Redesign Project. 
The project is an overhaul of the city's transportation, public transportation system to drastically reduce bus stop wait times. The meeting will help inform Madison residents about the plan, which is expected to go into effect next year. Now, that meeting is happening right now, and it's being held virtually over Zoom. And you can find more information about how to join the meeting on the City of Madison's website. The Madison Public Library's Takeover Program kicks off this weekend. The event is titled Thrival Tools on Indigenous Winter Survival and Brilliance. The event, created by three Indigenous Madison residents, will feature talks on Ho-Chunk stories, traditional Inuit throat singing, and a workshop on wintertime medicinal drinks. The event will take place at Central Library Saturday night from 6 to 8.30 p.m. and is open to community members of all ages and backgrounds. Alternatively, the event will also be live streamed. For more information on that live stream and more information on the event, head over to the Madison Public Library's website. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 775 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state's seven-day average down to the three-digit range for the first time in 2022. The current seven-day average for cases in Wisconsin is 864 confirmed cases every day. The percent of positive tests has also decreased with 5.7% of tests coming back positive over the last week. Now, there were 23 deaths from the virus yesterday, with an average of 11 people dying from COVID each day over the past week. Now, despite the decrease in cases, Dane County is still considered to have a high transmission rate of the virus. There were 101 confirmed COVID cases in Dane County yesterday, with one new death. And now on to today's top stories. Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board voted Wednesday to approve new guidelines for PFAS. The so-called forever chemicals have been linked to a number of adverse health effects and are a pervasive issue in Wisconsin's waters, from municipal wells to lakes and streams. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board has approved new contamination standards for PFAS, a family of chemicals that are pervasive in the state's waters. The board approved a drinking water standard of 70 parts per trillion for two of the most common PFAS chemicals Wednesday, a significantly higher cap than the 20 parts per trillion initially recommended by the Department of Natural Resources. Lee Donahue is a supervisor for the town of Campbell. She told the board extensive PFAS contamination has had life-changing effects on residents of her western Wisconsin town. It's like a ticking time bomb. You know, it's in your body. You can't get it out. You seek an alternative safe drinking water source and you pray for enforceable water standards. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, the chemicals have been linked to a number of adverse health effects, but research into the exact health outcomes of PFAS exposure is ongoing. Some business lobbying groups opposed the more stringent DNR guidelines for the chemicals, arguing they didn't adequately take into account the financial impacts such rules would have for businesses and manufacturers. The Department of Natural Resources' initial 20 parts per trillion proposal was rejected as board members believed the cost to enforce it, an estimated $5.6 million for the first year alone, would be too high. Scott Manley with Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce also argues the DNR lacks the specific authority to regulate PFAS. 
It's clear that DNR staff believe they have broad authority to regulate PFAS however they deem fit, but the agency has a long history of misinterpreting its own authority, including its authority to regulate PFAS substances. PFAS, also known as forever chemicals, will essentially never break down under normal environmental conditions. They're a common material found in everything from firefighting foam to nonstick cookware. The new PFAS standards, which fall in line with federal recommendations established under the Obama EPA, still need legislative approval. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.15 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this week, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi joined the family of Quadrant Wilson in calling for more transparency in the investigation of the shooting of Wilson, who was shot several times during an arrest earlier this month. That investigation is being led by one of Parisi's colleagues, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett. Earlier this week, we spoke with Dane County Executive about why he chose to voice his concerns publicly. And today, we spoke with Dane County, the Dane County Sheriff about their position on releasing details as they proceed with the investigation. Now, earlier today, producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett about why the department has not released more inf- information about the investigation. I'm on the line with Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett. Sheriff Barrett, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. So to start things off, I know that there are a lot of people asking for the Sheriff's Department to release more information in the investigation and maybe most prominently Dane County Executive Joe Parisi. So I have to ask, why are you not releasing more information on the investigation. Yeah, well, thank you uh, uh, for that uh, great question. And I understand the inquiries from the community um, as well as elected officials in regards to this incident. And I do have, uh, we all uh, agree on one thing, that we all want and un- we all want to understand and learn what happened on February 3rd on that morning. And that is a common goal that we all have. There are uh, the actions we are taking. Number one is to ensure that we have a fair and impartial and methodical investigation into this. Next, we want to make sure that we're presenting the facts as they become uncovered, but also as they do not affect our ability to maintain our integrity, but also affect the criminal investigation that will eventually be handed over to the Dane County District Attorney's Office. 
And last, we want to investigate the truth and the facts and turn it over to the DA's office in an uh, integrity-filled manner uh, so that an appropriate decision can be made moving forward in regards to accountability. And I know that there are also some specific laws in regards to releasing more information into an active investigation. Can you explain to me what those laws actually state? Yeah, so there's Wisconsin state statute that uh, state uh, that uh, if a law enforcement agency is involved in an officer or a critical incident or an officer-involved shooting, that they cannot uh, be in charge, cannot be the lead investigating agency. And that is why the Dane County Sheriff's Office is the lead investigating agency, as we were not involved in this incident. But we do have the resources, the track record, and the expertise to conduct a fair, impartial, and methodical uh, investigation into this incident. So by following those laws, there's also federal laws that protect specific information information in regards to those we come in contact with and prevent us from providing additional information such as their medical uh, condition, their mental health condition once they're in our custody here at the Dane County Jail. Now, I know the department has faced criticism about how long it takes sometimes to release information, most recently about this Quadrant Wilson case here, but then also the Fesky Park incident when you didn't even announce that an officer had been fired until months after the fact. So I want to ask, why did it take so long for even this sort of basic information to be released? Well, if we look at uh, the the facts and really break down the information that's being released uh, today, you know, at the current date is the 24th, but uh, on uh, the day of the incident, we immediately put out a release uh, identifying us as the lead investigating agency and identifying us as not being involved in that incident. Uh, On the uh, 11th, uh, we put out uh, that there were 21 law enforcement agents uh, involved, which included 13 Department of uh, Criminal Investigations agents, three DEA agents, and DEA, again, is the Drug and Enforcement Agency. There were three Madison police officers, one Wisconsin State Patrol officer, and one Wisconsin DNR warden that was on that. Also released on February 11th was that there were no body cameras used, And we identified Mr. Wilson as the individual uh, who was at the center of the investigation and injured throughout the incident. On the 17th, we provided additional information, which included that there was an active warrant through through the Department of Criminal Investigations uh, for his arrest for parole violation. We uh, immediately released that there was no gun or weapon found on Mr. Wilson at the time of the incident. We identified the agents uh, and their names who actually fired their guns during the incident, and that we will turn over all of the information to the district attorney's office once we've completed a thorough and methodical investigation. Um, also on uh, February 17th, we released information discussing the health care uh, that we provide for our residents while they're within our care and explaining the limitations on the control we have uh, when someone is being released from a hospital. We also walk through our medical care, our medical provider, and also that we do have additional limitations that don't allow us to share medical or mental health uh, uh, statuses or information on our residents without their permission. And on the 21st, we released uh, um, uh, information in response uh, to uh, the uh, discussions or the calls for a lack of transparency, identifying that number one, our ultimate goal is to have a integrity-filled investigation that is methodical, that is fair, that is impartial, 
and uh, continues to present the truth forward to the community as we all want. Now, you mentioned something there on the moving of Wilson from the hospital over to the Dane County Jail, and I feel like that's a part of this that is not maybe talked about quite as much. So can you sort of explain what the process is of moving someone from the hospital to the jail? Who makes that decision? Excellent. And and yes, and I can't uh, speak uh, specifically in regards to any individual who was within our care, but I can uh, discuss the entire process of what that looks like. So prior to coming into our facility, if someone is at the hospital, they uh, have to receive a medical clearance from medical professionals before they come within our care. Our professional and well-trained medical staff then reviews that and allows that individual into our custody while continuing the notes from the medical professional uh, that involves the care and understanding the care of that person while they're within our care. So the Dane County Sheriff's Office nor our medical staff here has the control or power influence to have someone leave the hospital against medical recommendations. So I know some people have been saying that the move from Quadron Wilson from the hospital to the jail has almost been been a way to showcase the need for a new jail with the jail consolidation project, which is something that you have been a big advocate for. Is there, just because I asked this and I know people are asking, is there any connection between those two things? Well, first off, uh, those that are within our care, the residents of the Dane County Jail receive uh, fantastic and excellent medical care from our uh, private uh, medical partner, WellPath. And we are one of the few agencies uh, in the state of Wisconsin that has 24-7, 365 medical care, as well as mental health care here on site. And so when someone is within our care, we are able to still provide fantastic care to them, but there are limitations due to the configuration of our current facility. The new facility, the jail consolidation project, will have an actual medical area for observations with medical beds. Currently, we have zero medical beds and are forced to use solitary confinement as our medical ward for those who are within our care. Well, Sheriff Barrett, do you just have any final thoughts that you'd like to express to people calling for more transparency in this investigation? Absolutely. Just uh, that uh, incidents like this remind us that we are all wanting the same things. All of us, whether it's uh, elected officials, whether it's community members, whether it's family members, we all want the same thing, uh, including us here at the Dane County Sheriff's Office, and that's understanding exactly what happened. We want a fair, impartial, methodical investigation, and we want accountability if it is necessary when we present that to the district attorney's office for charging decisions. And that is the ultimate goal is to have an integrity-filled investigation uh, that focuses on discovering the truth and presenting those facts for further discussion. That is the number one goal that we have in this process, and we will continue to do that, though we understand there are calls for transparency. I think it's also important that we understand that I think there could be some miscommunication in regards to, or some miscommunication has led to, or there has been a a varying understanding of what the word uh, transparency actually means. And I think that's what may be leading to some miscommunication between uh, us here conducting this investigation, as well as those that are within the community and elected officials. Transparency for us here at the Dane County Sheriff's Office means that we will provide the information as it becomes available. And as long as it does not jeopardize the integrity of the investigation, 
or future investigations in regard to this incident. So I, I believe some others may see uh, transparency as providing all the facts as they come out. And I do not believe that's the case. And that may have led to additional miscommunications. Uh, the county executive uh, and I agree on uh, one thing from his statement on Monday, and that is we both feel that we understand the importance of waiting for the facts before drawing conclusions. And that is what we're looking to do in this integrity-filled, methodical, fair, and impartial investigation that our detectives here at the Dane County Sheriff's Office are conducting. So just one final question for you. Do you have any sort of timeline about how long this investigation is going to take? Yeah, so there, it's hard to provide specific time frames because of uh, each individual investigation varies depending on all of the facts, the totality of the circumstances, those that are involved, the pieces of evidence. We're looking at right now over tw or 21 law enforcement officers that have to be interviewed. Those uh, interviews have to be uh, finalized. They have to be reviewed, um, and they have to be, uh, and they have to make sure that the information that is being put in there is accurate. We also have three vehicles that we have to go by bit by bit. We also have a busy intersection in the middle of the city in the middle of February in Wisconsin that we have to go through and get witness statements, video statements, as well as gather evidence uh, from that scene uh, during, uh, you know, the, during the winter time of Wisconsin. So it's hard to put a specific time on that, but I can guarantee you this. We at the Dane County Sheriff's Office will conduct an integrity-filled, methodical, fair and impartial investigation that seeks accountability in the truth in regards to this incident. I've been speaking with Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett about the investigation into the shooting of Quadron Wilson. Sheriff Barrett, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Hey, thank you so much for your time. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Isthmus on Wart looks at Madison schools hitting pause on ending standalone honors courses. We'll get a local explainer on what's happening in Ukraine. And Radio Chipstone takes a look at a pop-up art market. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. The Madison Metro School District has announced that they are postponing their decision to suspend their standalone honors courses in Madison high schools. Senior reporter for the Isthmus, Dylan Brogan, wrote about the decision last week and spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout about the issue for today's Isthmus on Wart. I'm talking with senior reporter with the Isthmus, Dylan Brogan. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Happy to do it. So just to start things off, what are standalone honor classes and what's the difference between those classes and earned honors classes? Yeah, so standalone honors classes um, are on the high school level at um, the Madison schools, 
And these are classes that any student can take. There's no test or special requirements to get in. But they do have uh, more advanced curriculum and tend to go at a, at a faster pace than, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, like a regular uh, class. So, and this is for core subject matters, English, biology, history. And, uh, yeah, and then the Nerd Honors is uh, something that the district started in 2017. And it's slightly different because it's not a, a different class. Um, but if a student makes a certain grade requirement or other predetermined criteria, uh, they get an honors credit at the end of the semester if they, if they can uh, fulfill a requirement of earned honors. So that's what both of those uh, honor tracks are. And why did the administration originally want to disband the standalone honors classes? Yeah, so in April, um, the district officials informed the Madison School Board that, that they were planning on getting rid of standalone honors classes for ninth graders uh, next fall and then for 10th graders uh, the year following that. Um, and the, the reason they were stating was because of the disproportionate uh, amount of uh, white students who were in these classes and basically that uh, for after doing surveys and stuff like that, that uh, students of color did not feel like they belonged in uh, standalone honors classes and that earned honors was uh, a better approach to providing this advanced curriculum. I want to get to what you said about black students not feeling like they belong in the honors courses in a minute, but the subject of your more recent article here is that they have decided not to suspend the standalone honors classes, at least for the moment. Did anyone give you a specific reason as to why they decided not to suspend these classes? No, and it took a long time to get the district even to confirm that they were pausing uh, their plan to get rid of standalone honors classes. And as far as anyone from uh, district leadership has said, that they, they might very well be, you know, that's the plan in the future to, to get rid of standalone honors classes in the high schools. Um, but they said they were delaying it to get more uh, input from the community and from students. And uh, some of the feedback that they have gotten so far um, and that's come throughout 2021 while, you know, the, the school board was getting updated on uh, implementing this plan of just earned honors. Um, it, you know, there's been a lot of concern from parents that earned honors is uh, just a different experience. And it's not that they should get rid of earned honors, uh, but that these standalone classes were important, too, because not every student learns at the same level. And these standalone honor classes, there are about, uh, I think it's a little bit over 40% are students of color. Uh, so there was just uh, concern from parents that they, perhaps the district should be focusing on getting more kids of color in these standalone honor classes and not just doing away with them entirely. But it's uh, kind of up in the air right now what exactly is going to happen. I know that school board member uh, Christina Gomez-Schmidt, just in last December, uh, this was when, you know, they were still on track to get rid of standalone honors. Uh, this school board member expressed a lot of concerns that she hadn't seen a plan on or how it was going to be implemented. And then about, you know, uh, a few weeks later, administrators told teachers that they were, they were putting the whole thing on pause. So, I, I, presumably, uh, there's going to be more debate about this or perhaps more detailed plans about how to do it. 
um, but we just don't know at the moment. And what were the teachers' reactions to all of this news? Are they sort of for or are they against the standalone honors classes? Well, I think that probably depends on your teachers. There's definitely, I mean, the criticism is that, you know, this creates segregated classes in our high schools where uh, you have a a disproportionate amount of uh, kids of certain races divided up. And even if it is self-selected and that, you know, a, a diversity of students at, on all levels, not just race, but uh, perhaps just in terms of skill level, too. Like, that's an, an important part of it. So the teachers I talked to, I would say, aren't against uh, earned honors, but definitely felt like district administrators were going ahead with this uh, earned honors only, and that it was different. And then it's just not the same as these standalone honors classes that, you know, a lot of high-achieving students want to be in. No, so I think it wasn't so much about being for or against, but that, you know, the district was just not prepared to make this big switch in, in, in what they're doing in high schools. Now, sort of going back to what you were saying before, one student that you spoke with said that black students don't necessarily feel like they belong in these honors courses. Why, why is that? And how would the earned honors courses sort of fix this over the standalone honors? I'm not sure it would necessarily fix it. No, the district has worked with, uh, you know, outside groups that are devoted to creating equity in schools, and they did a lot of surveys and stuff, and the the consensus was, you know, that there are students of color that just don't feel like, for whatever reason, uh, they belong in those classes, and I'm, you know, I think that's a hard uh, thing to pinpoint exactly why they feel that way, but it's important to recognize that you know, that some students don't feel welcome in these honors classes, and that's a problem that the district needs to deal with. Now, uh, the, the approach in April was to get rid of the standalone classes altogether. Uh, what's coming up in the future, we're going to just have to see. I, I will say, though, that the, the broader plan to get rid of standalone honors classes seemed to have support from the majority of the school board, not every member, but most of the members would look forward to uh, the district making this initiative but you know that now the plan is perhaps happening perhaps not the district said they're going to be doing more feedback or seeking more feedback on this from the community but it kind of looks like that hasn't happened either yet so uh i would say you know maybe in a few months we get an update but for now everything is pretty much staying the same I've been speaking with Dylan Brogan, senior reporter over at the Isthmus. We've been talking about his newest article on the Madison Metro School District's decision not to suspend standalone honors classes. You can read the full story online at isthmus.com. Dylan, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you. My pleasure, Nate. Early this morning, state officials reported that the Russian military had invaded Ukraine. The move comes after weeks of tension between the two sovereign countries, with President Joe Biden announcing today major sanctions against Russia. To learn more about what is happening in Eastern Europe and to learn more about today's events, WORT producer Nate Wiegehout spoke with Yoshiko Herrera, a political science professor at UW-Madison. I'm on the line with Yoshiko Herrera, political science professor at UW-Madison. Yoshiko, thank you so much for joining me here today. You're welcome. So now, obviously, this is a very large and complex topic here. So let's just start off with some history. What has Russia's relationship with the Ukraine been with since the end of the Cold War? 
Ukraine is one of the 15 successor states to the Soviet Union. So currently, Ukraine is a sovereign state neighboring Russia. So relationship number one is of two sovereign states. Russia does not recognize, however, the sovereignty of, of Ukraine, does not respect the sovereignty of Ukraine, I should say. And Ukraine is part of a, a larger set of grievances that Russia has about disrespect and humiliation after the end of the Cold War. But some of those historical issues or arguments actually are somewhat outdated given the current situation because Russia, with the decision to invade, has changed the debate. So it's not about polite intellectual debates about who was to blame for the end of the Cold War or the breakup of the Soviet Union. And it's now about Russia's aggressive invasion of Ukraine in an unprovoked way that has kind of upended European security and international norms. Now, you said that Russia didn't really respect Ukraine's sovereignty. Could you explain that a little bit? Why did they not recognize it? Yeah, there are historical cultural ties between Russia and Ukraine. Their languages are similar. They have a long shared history. But the two countries diverged, and there's a formation of different nations, Ukrainians and Russians. You can think of it like Scotland and England or, you know, different ways in which countries might have a shared longer history, but eventually they diverge in the modern world. Russia, nevertheless, has an idea that the states of the former Soviet Union are in its sphere of influence or its orbit. And so it has tried to assert that it gets to decide whether states of the former Soviet Union join NATO, join the EU, etc. It's very aggrieved that the Baltic states joined NATO and have really turned their back on Russia. And so Russia tried to say also that the U.S. and NATO should stay out of Central Asia, the Caucasus. So Georgia in 2008 is kind of a precursor to this. But Russia has made a, a firm demand that Ukraine not join NATO. And the response from the West has largely been that Ukraine is a sovereign nation and gets to decide what it wants to do on its own. But the, the Russian perspective, I'm not saying it's correct, but I'm just outlining their perspective or Putin's perspective is that Russia should have a say in Ukraine's military alliances and in, in terms of politics in Ukraine. And unfortunately, even though that message has been received loud and clear in the West, namely that people were taking Russian positions seriously as late as last week, Putin nevertheless decided instead that he is going to invade and it looks like try to oust the existing democratic regime and put in a pro-Russian regime. So in speaking of Vladimir Putin there, what has his role been historically over the last few years in sort of these tensions between Russia and Ukraine? Okay, well, first and foremost, Putin has been in power since 1999 in Russia, and he has become increasingly authoritarian over the years and increasingly willing to use violence to prop up his regime internally. In 2014, when he invaded Crimea, he took that territory and annexed it to Russia. It's a longer story of why there was support in Russia for that move and why it's different from now. But what 2014 entailed was the beginning of an ongoing conflict in the eastern part of Ukraine. And so Putin has been involved in supporting so-called Russian separatists in the east, um, that is, people that he backs that are supposedly wanting independence from from Ukraine. That was kind of the pretext of this invasion, was declaring these two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk, 
independent and then saying Russia was going to, quote, help them uh, or come to their aid. So Putin has been involved in terms of the takeover of territory in Crimea and then the support in the East for this war that's been going on since 2014. So now with keeping all of that in mind, looking at all that history, what is the official reason that Russia gave to now invade the Ukraine? Well, it claims it's not invading. It claims it was helping out these two territories to the east. But if you listen to his speech on Monday night, I mean, he makes really outrageous claims about NATO being about to launch an attack from Ukraine and the need to avert that. Uh, yesterday, he mentioned denazifying, uh, claiming there's a Nazi threat. So this week, he's made just kind of ludicrous claims about Ukraine threatening Russia, Ukraine developing nuclear weapons. I mean, things that are just totally false. So I think it's it's important to contextualize that he's making these historical claims in the context of overt aggressive action. And so even though I'm, I think a lot of people would be willing to talk about historical grievances and who might have a point or not, we're kind of in a different world where those are a diversion from just outright aggression that doesn't actually have a clear cause or reason because Putin could have de-escalated this last week, as late as last week, by just accepting that, okay, he's made his point that Russia wants to be taken seriously and he could have, you know, backed down. But instead, he went further than many, many people thought he would. While we're running up against the clock here, do you have just any final thoughts on this situation that you'd like to share? I guess the only thing I want to note is that this is really Putin's war. And so people should understand that there is not widespread support for this war in Russia. There is not historical animosity between Russians and Ukrainians. There's a lot of intermarriage, mixed ethnicity. Ukraine Ukrainians are the largest minority after ethnic Russians within the Russian Federation. So this is really an action by Putin and his regime. And um, hopefully the lack of support for the war within the country, as well as the unified response externally, hopefully that will be enough to, to deter him. I've been speaking with Yoshiko Herrera, professor of political science at UW-Madison. Yoshiko, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with me today. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you. It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. According to their website, Communication is a nonprofit dedicating, dedicated to fostering a vibrant, creative community. It's a sober, safe space for artistic expression. Communication is currently in residence at the Garver Feed Mill Canvas Gallery. The exhibition is called Call and Response, Building Relationships Between Artists and with Community. And this Saturday, Communication will partner with Artworking for a pop-up market at the Garver Feed Mill. 
Lance Owens is the director of Artworking, and it's an organization that guides individuals with developmental or intellectual challenges along the path of generating income through art. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Owen tells contributor Jennifer Fields that in working with the artists who participate in artworking, he's found kindred spirits. Part of the reason that I probably ended up doing this work is that I feel like the disability community so often is an outlier from mainstream society. And I think I myself am sort of an outlier. And we've set up this little encampment on the fringe of society, (laughs) I think, because we find resonance in one another. It's so honest and so approachable and so delightful. And everywhere you look, there's a point of interest. This just seems like I'm being led into somebody's world that I don't often have entree into, and it's inviting. It feels good to stand around the pieces, and it's not just this work. It's the work that I see in this room, and I'm wondering if I'm being hypersensitive because I know it comes from people who are on the spectrum. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to be that patronizing sort of like art historian who's like, oh, these pieces are lovely. But these really, these are moving pieces. And like, you can't help but, I can't help but feel some joy Mm -hmm. and some attachment to them because everywhere I look, there's something that's familiar, but it's familiar with a twist that I've not seen before. You know, and and to separate kind of from the cliche of sort of the pure joy of the artist with a disability, But I think that there is truth to the idea that the artists that we're working with don't come with the affect and pretense. One of the things that kind of drove me away from art and academia was the preponderance of affect and self-absorption. And I feel like just the artists that we're working with don't carry that cultivated self-awareness that the mainstream art world does. And I think that's reflected in the work and what you perceive as sort of inviting and open and warm and joyful, I think is actually just the absence of the sterility and the distance and the sort of stoicism of contemporary art. Both of us having gone through the UW and the art program, you're sort of subject to whatever your professor has studied. Right? <laughs> you, <laughs> you're encouraged to look outside, but the readings really just support their work. So it's this idea of this is someone who's just telling me their story without any sort of influence necessarily from, as you said, this history of being stoic and history of being right and history <laughs> of promoting a certain type of person or a certain person from a certain, what do we call it, financial background. Because if you're going to be a working artist, you have to kind of start off rich or have a patron. Right. Yes. No, I definitely think that working as a professional artist is so often the career path of of privilege. And it's interesting, you know, there's like not a lot of room in the middle of the hump at some level. And I think that one of the things that makes the the path of, of a professional artist for a person with a disability viable is just the ability to ramp up income levels. You know, so often when you think about what your career opportunities are, you're thinking about how you're going to pay for your health insurance and how you're going to pay for your mortgage. And can you make, you know, $80,000 a year, you know, after a few years in the business? And I think that it's more viable at some level what we're doing with the business owners that we're working with, because most of our artists are business owners. Because starting out with really low level of income and gradually ramping up is much more realistic and viable. 
And it's interesting, though, because sometimes people have a hard time reconciling, and maybe this is true for all artists, the idea that art can be a business or that art can be a profession or that art can be a career. Right. You sold out. (laughs) Right. You were so much better, man, when you were pure. Right. Or if you're following your passion that somehow, you know, there's the the, uh, Puritan austerity of the American psyche, the idea that if you enjoy what you do, that you're not working hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) So then, Lance... As we look around this room and we see the works, is there a, a piece in here that really touches you? Is there something that tells a particular story that you're willing to share with us? Oh, boy. I can take my pick. You know, I'm looking and I'm just, as I see each, there's so many different stories that tell different stories. A lot of the stories are, are kind of about the trajectory of people's path of creative growth when i look at a thing like i'm looking at a painting here and chloe happens to be standing right there and this is a painting that chloe made and i think of how when we first met chloe when she came out of high school and she wasn't really painting at all at that time she was just doing some ceramic work and gradually began painting just as a kind of to take a break from the ceramic stuff that she had been doing but then her work has evolved so radically over time that it's some of my very, 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 very favorite work in the studio. And oftentimes when we show it out, it will end up being the work that's the like, oh, what's your favorite standout piece? And the person who maybe owns the exhibition space or the gallery or whatever will be like, oh, I really love these paintings. And I think she never really thought about painting as a way to make a living really in the early days of even small business planning with her. And, and, it's, I think it's some of my, I think it's the most contemporary and the most like, it's just really interesting composition. It is at my, some of my absolute favorite painting. And, and when we started this path together, there was never even a conversation about painting being the, the outcome. It was something that just sort of happened over time. And I can see in your face that that brings joy. I think that part of the motivation for doing this work is I just, I hated square pegging round holes. I really hated trying to coach somebody through, you know, an employment opportunity that their heart wasn't in. And I love so much being able to help people find their passion and actually track down a path that's really native to them and then see, you know, the the financial outcome or the career outcome or just even the self-identification as an artist with, you know, an identity as an artist. And I love seeing people find what is their Tao versus what is our Tao for them? <laughs> and so it's really exciting every time somebody kind of finds their rhythm or their style or their niche, or even if it's just finding out what kind of support structures help them to be happy and productive and having as light a touch as possible. You know, I think part of my, my theory about artworking is that if people are doing what they're passionate about, then we spend very little time doing behavioral management. And I think that's, you know, we could not be trying to make people be compliant. Maybe even if it's a little transgressive. I get excited when people make work that's a little transgressive or a little edgy or a little like, can we really show that? Is that appropriate? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> right, right. I get excited when, when people find their voice and their voice maybe isn't our vision of what like happy, 
disability art is supposed to be. I love it when people like come out with something where it's like, oh, this is a little dark or this is a little racy, <laughs> you know? For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your reporter tonight was Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributor Jennifer Fields. Super Dave Lorenz engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Wiggyhouse produced this show. And Miss Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Listen to WORT on the go by downloading the WORT app for your phone. And don't miss an episode of the local news. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.